Welcome to Believer Radio, a companion soundtrack to our 2023 music issue, produced in collaboration with BFF.fm. My name is Daniel Gambiner, and I'm the editor of The Believer, a quarterly arts and culture magazine published by McSweeney's in San Francisco. For this project, we've asked a handful of our contributors to DJ hour-long sets of music related to the articles they wrote for the issue. To view the full offering of DJ sets, please visit bff.fm slash believer. And to subscribe to The Believer and support more projects like this one, please visit thebeliever.net slash subscribe. Hi, this is Long Tollhurst. You're listening to, uh, uh, when I say, uh, I mean, my son, Gray, and I have made a little radio show. And it's called All That Has Dark Sounds. And it's it's about a lot of goth music, isn't it, Gray? Yes, it's an exploration of goth music from its origins in the 1970s and 80s England to now. To now. So uh, it's, it's, what, what are we going to do first? Are we going to listen to some stuff first or how are we going to start this? Yeah, I think we should start at the beginning. So I think we should start with one of your tracks. Oh, okay. Yeah, because I, I picked a few tracks out to sort of illustrate the points and... We'll have a little chat about them. So this is Bella Lagos' Dead by Bauhaus, which was out in 1979, I think. Thank you. 
was Bauhaus. Bella Lugos is dead. I think it's probably actually the best Bauhaus song and it's the first and it's the longest. Honestly, it's probably the only one you need to listen to from Bauhaus. Why, why is that? Not not choosing parties? I like that too. That's good too, but it's just, it's just the, the one that encapsulates it the best. If you listen to Bella Lugosi's Dead, you, you kind of get it, you know what I mean? Right. Well, because it's a strange confluence of stuff because although it's sort of like glammy and campy and, and gothy, but before we knew what we would call it, it's also very of the time because it's got sort of this dub bass line, which was kind of big in sort of like punk time from 77 to about 1980. A lot of people also put sort of like dub or reggae elements into their music. Bands like The Clash probably being a notable example. But as with most things that become uh, indicators of their particular time, that song is, as you rightly say, if you get that one, you pretty much know who Bauhaus are. And that is evident in the song because it has all of those elements. It has the low-pee bass line, the dubby bass line, and it has uh, Kevin Haskins' brilliant drumming. And it has Peter Murphy's very recognisable campy goth vocal. So it's, uh, you know, and it's talking about Bella Lugosi, for goodness sake. Let's not forget that. Yeah. yeah, I think Bella Lugosi is Dead is a really good way to start it off. And the next track I'm going to play definitely takes on a lot of that that campiness and that minimalism that is in Bella Lugosi's Dead. And it's by a contemporary band called Lebanon Hanover from Berlin, I believe. And it's called Gallo Dance. So we'll play that now.
I think moving forward we should play some more old stuff you know so old stuff is is that is that what it is now old stuff yeah so i suppose it is really because it's really if i look at it it's probably about 35 years old at least maybe more it's all older than that yeah. yeah wow anyway what else is goth what's the most important goth stuff from from the beginning what do you think we're, we're talking about sort of from the early 80s onward yeah from the early 80s yeah well probably Susie in the banshees and yeah. uh you know i have uh, i have a very long intimate relationship with those fellows and sue i i went on tour with them in 1979 the joint hands tour which was their second album it was a very tumultuous tour but i like spellbound especially if we're going to talk about the music i like spellbound especially because it has my favorite piece of of budgie's drumming at the end which uh, there's that big fill that sound it says i think the line says something like you know and if your parents forget to say their prayers you grab them by the legs and throw them down the stairs right and the drum fill sounds exactly like somebody doing that which is is genius to me you know because budgie's a good friend of mine um he actually, he told me the story of how they did that. They wanted a sound that sounded, you know, a bit bigger and, and harder for the drums. So they put them out in the stairwell of the building. And uh, I think he did it admirably, but it's that great sound of the stairwell. So that particular song, I think, yeah, you know, like if I think about 1979, Sue was a very striking presence on stage. We did the whole tour with them. There was a sort of brief gap at the, in the very beginning because uh, John and Kenny, the drummer and uh, guitarist of the band, ran away after the second show. They they pinned their tour passes to the pillows in the hotel and ran away, got on train and left. And we were stuck together with the Banshees at uh, a theatre in Aberdeen in Scotland with you know a couple of thousand very upset Scottish people because uh, the Banshees weren't able to play that night. So me and Robert and Michael, as it was at the time, we, we sort of tried our best and played a few extra songs and things. But that's really when, that was really the night that we became friends because we were, you know, comrades in arms in a, in a very difficult situation. So, you know, ever since then, I, I've had a relationship with him. And obviously now I have a relationship with, with Budgie because he's like my creative partner in... Uh, new band that I have and also in podcasts that I do called Curious Creatures. So now we're going to hear Spellbound by Susan the Banshees, which is, in my mind, one of the greatest goth singles. From the cradle bars comes a beckoning voice that sings spinning You have no choice
So that was Spellbound by Susie and the Banshees. You know, I think Susie Sue really embodied like the goth aesthetic, you know what I mean? With her general haircut and her dress and stuff like that. But we were talking in the book, uh, the book that's coming out, Goth a History, that we worked on a little bit together. Yeah. About how goth is not just an aesthetic. It's also kind of a philosophy yeah. or a way of being, a movement, all these things. And I want to talk a little bit about that, right? Like, you know, there is like the goth kind of vibe, right? Like the Halloween and bats and things like that. But there's also sort of the goth ethos. Yes. Like when selecting tracks to this program, I was thinking more about like the goth ethos than the goth aesthetic. Right. And I was thinking like, how is the goth ethos continued into the present? And I realized that it's it's multifaceted, right? It's not just in like recreations of the initial goth music, right? It's not just like gothic rock, rock bands. Right. It's really just kind of this dark undercurrent and this recognition of like the darker aspects of our experience that is the essential sort of goth core. Yes, yeah, the essential component. I mean, you're right, it's, it's not even really a subculture. It's a way of looking at the world. It's about really, I mean, it's, core, it's probably about being comfortable being a, a bit of an outsider. So therefore, all the things that our society in general tells us are to be avoided and not considered, you know, the darker aspects of life, like, you know, the fact that we're not all going to be here forever. Uh, Most people, they know that, they accept that, but they don't really acknowledge how it plays into their everyday existence. And I think what happens with goth is, is psychologically... It's it's freeing because it doesn't shy away from the harder aspects of existence. So therefore, we become uh, liberated. Really, that's that's the the thing that I get from it, and I've always got from it. It's an acknowledgement because otherwise, you know, it can seem like you're you're living sometimes in this very strange world that, on one hand, has you know has light and dark, but only light is ever acknowledged. A friend of mine, Kathy Unsworth, who wrote a book on goth as well, actually recently, The Season of the Witch, and she said that sometimes, you know, the way that goth is portrayed in the media as being, you know, bats and coffins and graveyards is a, is a way to defang it, you know, is to take its power away. And I think that's true overall in a lot of, you know, the way society will look at things. I, I remember when punk started, it, it, everything was like, well... You know, it's spiky hair and angry lyrics. Well, yes, but it's mostly about a bunch of nonconformists trying to change their way of being in society. And goth was a sort of more romantic version of that. And by romantic, I don't mean necessarily, you know, Mills and Boone. I mean more more Wuthering Heights and Emily Bronte. It, it took like the, it's the only word you can use, the darker aspects of uh, our existence and portrayed them in in a romantic way. Piece of it is also what keeps it relevant. It's what has kept it going for forty years because it's it's something that reinvents itself and regenerates itself as new people and new new blood. A very apt phrase. New blood come into it. The thing I think that we've understood over the years with with goth is that it it is like I say self regenerating. Yeah, goth is always regenerating. It's taking new forms, and in that vein, I want to play 
a track by the NYC born Berlin based DJ and producer Face Fatal called The Drowned World, which is definitely very different from early goth music, but I think still maintains some of the ethos and the underlying darkness that we were just talking about.
that was the drowned world. That was great. So in the spirit of that, here we have Joy Division. Now, this track, Atmosphere, comes off of a, a record that Gray will probably remember seeing as a, as a small child or a teenager at his house. Uh, it's that one from the French label, Sordid Sentimental, with... Uh, looks like it almost looks like a hand painted cover of this mystic guy standing on a hill in in mist and the story of how i came to have that is quite unusual because uh there was only a, a few uh, like about 1500 copies made i think i'm i'm not sure of the exact number anyway and i was i was in france on tour in a town called rouen and i was in rouen we went to a, a record store because Back then, a lot of bands did in-store appearances when they're on tour to sign records because most music came out on records. You couldn't get it on your iPhone or there was no iPhone. So, um, you know, you went to record store to sign records and, and the usual sort of arrangement with most record store owners was that if you sit there for an hour and diligently sign people's records that they'd obviously bought from the store, they would go to you in a magnanimous gesture, you know, have a look around and pick a couple of records you'd like yourselves, guys. And and so, you know, we knew that, and they knew that. And I was in the record store signing, and then suddenly I noticed this single up on the shelves behind the counter. It's extremely rare now. And back then it was it was pretty sort of celebrated as well. And I suddenly realized, okay, this is the place where they made it. This is the label run by these people that run this store. This is where this record comes from. And at the end, they asked me the question, and I think it was one of the owners, and said, you know, would you like... I said, I only want one record. I said, could I could I have that one, please? And at first, they were sort of like, oh, well, oh, maybe. Uh, yeah, OK. And they were very kind and they are very nice, and they gave it to me, and I still have it. And I will never sell it, even though it's worth an awful lot of money now, mainly because, to me, it represents uh, something that... I can't really even describe with words. It, it's a whole time. It's a whole way of being. And so to me, it's more like a, it, it's like a relic in a way. It's like, you know, a, a sacred relic. It has that kind of, of power to bring me back to that time and, and that place and who I was back then as a person. I was probably, actually, I was younger than, than you are now, Gray. So um, it's a very special record to me. And uh, this is this is it.
Great, not very cheery, but a great song and the, the great Ian Curtis singing vocals there. You know, what's so funny is that, so, you know, we're talking about the, the history of goth and Joy Division, things like that. But like it, it has almost become like super mainstream with Joy Division. The pasta shop that's two doors down from me, their T-shirt is a Unknown Pleasures style Really? Logo. Yeah, for their fancy pasta shop, you know, wow. it has nothing to do with pasta. I mean... Or Joy Division, you know? It has all to do with pasta. So do you think that would have Mr. Curtis either turning over in his grave or, or laughing about it? What, what do you think? I mean, because to me, it's kind of comic, but it's also, it, it's weird how our society adopts, like, all the the outliers. A lot of the main goth attributes, the, the dark, spiky hair and, the, you know, leather clothing or rubber clothing and, and, you know, spiky boots and things like that, it became part of the fashion mainstream. To me, I suppose it's the ultimate irony, you know, that we all get churned into the commercial machine in the end, one way or another, whether we like it or not, you know? I think I think you would have thought it was funny. And then I think he would have wanted to get paid for it. Well, yeah, I'm I'm sure, actually. And what we've got up now, what's up now then? Uh, I'm going to play something local, actually. I'm going to play something from some friends of mine from Oakland called Fearing. And this is off their new record. It's called I Was So Alive. Oh, yeah. 
I think I asked you this in the interview, the the print interview, but what's the most goth cure song? Cold on on pornography. The reason I say that is because it has the sort of the what I would consider the three pillars of Gotham because it, it starts off with this thunderous beat. But before that, just before that, there's a very plaintive, almost howling like an animal uh, cello played by Robert, who had never played cello before. So it, to my knowledge, so it kind of sounded, you know, angst anyway, naturally. And then there's this pounding rhythm comes in. And then there's this sort of glissando I think it was probably keyboards, but it could also be um, bells, you know. So it had all the all the elements, and the vocal comes in. And so to me, that's that's probably the the gothiest track we ever did. Plus, you know, it, it's it's like about crawling across mirrors, and and it comes off of our gothiest album as well, really. Cool. Let's take a listen. This is Cold Medicare.
Yeah, so that was your band. Yeah, for for good or for worse, it was my band. Yeah, it started when I was, uh, I don't know, 16 or so, probably started that full time and went on until the beginning of my 30s with them. Yeah. Do you ever listen to it just uh, on your own? Yes, sometimes. Not not as much as I listen to something like uh, Low by David Bowie. I probably listen to that once or twice a month in, in my car when I'm driving around, you know. As long as I'm not playing, you know, always crashing in the same car because that would be tempting fate a bit, I think. But, but Cold, you have to listen to really, really loud that it hits you. I mean, it's interesting. I was telling somebody the other day that making that album as people... Budgie said this as too, because he would come and see us in the studio when we were recording it. As people, we were not in very good shape. We were kind of falling apart in many ways, mentally and and, and probably physically as well, if I think about it. But we, we were not in good shape. We had been on the road pretty consistently for the previous five years. And this was our fourth album in five years. So we were exhausted. But the music was very super precise and intense and that saved us, I think. That's, that was like the focus of our whole life. That's all that we did. So, so it, it, it helped us, I think. It used to upset me a bit when, when people would uh, talk to us about it. They'd say, oh, well, you play this very dark, depressing music and it must make other people feel very dark and depressed and maybe, you know, it's not good for them. And I'd say, well, no, that's not the truth. The truth is the opposite. A lot of people will tell me uh, and have told me that being able to feel that they weren't alone in these feelings or, or you know, have have this uh, expression open to them, if they weren't, if they didn't have that, that, that was a way of, that was a solace to them rather than the opposite. It didn't make them feel worse. It actually made them feel better, which, you know, is it was wonderful stuff to hear. Yeah, I think so too. I think it, there's a hopeful aspect to it. I think that's what draws people in is that actually it's um, cathartic, you know? I mean, its influence goes beyond music. It goes into film with people like Tim Burton and stuff like that, fashion, et cetera, et cetera. I guess for this playlist, I was really interested in how like, yeah, the goth influence kind of winds its way through other, other music. And so I chose another track from electronic producer Silent Servant, who's based in LA actually. He takes a lot of inspiration from post-punk, goth, dark wave, but he's making he's making techno. This track is called Cyberluminescence. It actually has Steven Melinder of Cabaret Voltaire singing on it. So it has that relation to the to the industrial past, you know?
So this this is a track by Kelly Joke, Love Like Blood. One thing that could be nobody can really deny about Kelly Joke is their performances. I, I saw them a couple of times live, were very, very intense. You know, I mean, Jazz Coleman, the singer, is, is quite a hypnotic figure on stage. Actually a little little terrifying in some ways as well, but, you know, in a good way. I just always thought I, I remember hearing this and although I'm not completely certain what it's about it's got a great rhythm and uh, you know Big Paul playing the drums was great and it had uh, Geordie who's great guitarist and I think this had uh, I don't think it's Youth the bassist anyway but they they, they had two bassists Youth and uh, Raven and Raven's not with us anymore but Youth is uh, they, they were just very heavy really I think uh, it, it's kind of a, it's another aspect of of if I look at a band like Kelly Joke, that's a, probably a lot where, you know, some of the later things that became more industrial and, and that's where that comes from. That's their roots, you know. But it's also got some some goth stuff. But I just like this track anyway. This is Killing Joke with uh, Love Like Blood.
You know, yeah, we're recording this on Halloween weekend. And oh, yeah. That's the gothiest weekend of the year, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. It's by accident, though. It's just timing, you know? Yeah, there are, there are no accidents. Yeah. Yeah. I believe so, anyway. But, you know, I hope you've enjoyed spending a, an hour with the men of the Tollhurst clan and uh, talking about goth and all aspects of goth. And uh, keep on listening. Thank you for listening to Believer Radio. To find more DJ hours, please visit bff.fm slash believer. And to subscribe to The Believer, please go to thebeliever.net slash subscribe. Our producer and engineer is Claire Mullen. Many thanks to the staff of The Believer, Rita Bullwinkle, Justin Carter, Annie Dills, Ginger Green, Kim Hugh Lowe, Lucy Huber, Heidi Julevitz, Ed Park, Raj Tani, Sunra Thompson, Amanda Yuli, Vendela Vida, Dan Weiss, Sally Wen Mao, and James Ye. Huge thank you also to our collaborators on this project, BFF.FM. To make a donation to them and support community radio, please go to BFF.FM slash donate.